Welcome to the PLUS podcast with Rachel Thomas and Marianne Freiberger. In this podcast, we bring you the latest news from the world of maths, find out about the role of mathematics in combating climate change, and talk to Shan Majid about a whole new geometry of space. First, here's the news. One of our most revered optical phenomena, the rainbow, may help scientists find life on distant planets. Rainbows are formed because light rays are bent or refracted as they enter droplets of liquid that hang in the atmosphere. It only takes some basic geometry and physics to understand how they work. Once you know the angle by which light of different wavelengths is refracted, you can work out why it is scattered into the different colours, why the rainbow has a perfect semicircular shape, and at what angle in the sky you can expect to see one. But what happens if your droplets are not made of water? Different liquids give rise to rainbows at different angles because the angle of refraction changes in a way measured by what's called the liquid's refractive index. This fact enabled researchers to determine that the clouds of Venus are droplets of concentrated sulfuric acid. Researchers now suggest that the same approach could be used to detect clouds made of liquid water in a planet's atmosphere, and where there is water, there might also be life. If you were affected by the 80s mania for the Rubik's Cube, you can now rest a little easier. The computer scientists Gene Cooperman and Dan Kunkel of the Northeastern University in Boston have just proved that you can solve a Rubik's Cube in only 26 moves. No matter how scrambled up it is, 26 steps is all you need to get it back to its original state, with each side having all the same color. The researchers visualized the problem of solving the cube using a network. Each node of the network stands for one of the states the cube can be in, and two nodes are linked if you can get from one to the other by one of the moves you're allowed to perform on a cube. The solved state of the cube corresponds to one of the nodes, so the problem boiled down to showing that no matter which node you start with, you can always find a path to the solved state node that involves at most 26 steps. This may sound easy enough, but there's a huge problem. The complete network has more than 43 million trillion nodes, a number that defies even the fastest of supercomputers. Cooperman and Kankel used group theory, the mathematical tool for studying symmetry, to reduce the problem to smaller components. And nevertheless, they still needed 7 terabytes of distributed disk space and 8,000 CPU hours to crack in. Researchers from Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee are using sophisticated maths to see how climate models stand up to real observations. Ultimately, the research may help determine to what extent climate change is linked to human activity. Traditional climate models are not particularly good at predicting extreme events like droughts or extreme rainfall. They fare even worse when it comes to determining if two extreme events are related to each other, for example, two droughts occurring simultaneously at different locations on the planet. But this information is clearly important, since climate simulations make use of patterns in existing observations to predict future events. The new mathematical method, developed by Aurup Ganguly, allows researchers to pinpoint exactly this kind of interdependency. It combines the power of statistics with that of supercomputers. Currently, the researchers are using their methods to evaluate the performance of existing climate models in terms of rainfall extremes. But once the technique is tried and tested, it may become important in understanding all extreme events and developing early warning tools. Stay on to hear more about the maths of climate change later on in this podcast. Geometry, the study of space and shapes, is thousands of years old. But in the last hundred years or so, physicists have started to suspect that the ordinary Euclidean geometry, which we all encounter at school, may not give an accurate description of the true nature of space-time. 
Shan Majid is professor of mathematics at Queen Mary University of London, and he has used something called non-commutative geometry to build a brand new model of space-time. Very often in the media, we have this kind of false sense of that everything's been done, and that if you learn a lot of string theory or quantum gravity or some very abstract physics, then you will find out that space-time is 10-dimensional or 11-dimensional, etc. And it gives a false sense that scientists know what they're doing. Scientists who are actually working in the field haven't really got a clue about what's really going on. There are fundamental problems in science as we know it. So what are the problems with science? When we developed science, we started off at everyday scales, which we're familiar with, so we assume that space is something you can move your hand around in, it's a continuum, and we build that into our theories. But it turns out this assumption just doesn't uh, hold water when you look at very, very small scales, even within the theories that we have. It is the assumption that space is continuous that causes all the problems, but why? When you uh, actually want to probe a very small distance in reality to do an experiment, you would need to have uh, particles of very high energy because... Um, when a particle, uh, all particles are, have a wave aspect, which makes them slightly fuzzy, and uh, if you want to have a very short wavelength to approach it, to resolve a very short distance, you will need to have a very heavy particle. However, when you have very, very heavy particles, they will form black holes, and then, you, then they will curve the geometry of space around them so much that the very thing you were trying to measure will be destroyed. And what that, when you do the calculations, what you discover is that anything less than uh, 10 to the minus uh, 35 meters is intrinsically unknowable. So therefore, the continuum assumption is actually unfounded. Do you have an intuition of what space is like if it is not continuous? The point is that uh, any kind of vision, any kind of attempt to visualize it will force you into the very mistake which I'm talking about, which is you're thinking of geometry as what you're familiar with at everyday scales, so you will think of a continuum. But in fact, it turns out that this whole, vision, this whole concept of visualizing things is not necessary for geometry. And geometry, if you approach it as a mathematician, actually can be done as algebra. The connection between algebra and geometry is something we're all familiar with from school. If you want to describe a circle, then that's described by an equation, x squared plus y squared equals 1. And in some sense, the equation itself captures the geometry. So from an algebraic point of view, you could say there is an algebra whose symbols are x and y, and the algebra is freely generated by those symbols with the rules of algebra that you can multiply and add them. And, uh, and these symbols are just placeholders for actual numbers. But what if we stop considering X and Y simply as placeholders for numbers and look at them as purely algebraic objects? Then our collections of geometrical spaces, for example the plane, the sphere or three-dimensional space, turns into a collection of algebraic systems. The universe of algebraic systems is a lot larger than that of geometrical spaces. There might just be one that describes the kind of non-continuous geometry we're after. The first hints as to what such an algebraic system might look like came in the 1920s, when physicists including Werner Heisenberg and Erwin Schrödinger formulated the mathematics underlying quantum mechanics. In the algebraic systems they came up with to describe quantum mechanics, the coordinates x, y and z for space and t for time were not placeholders for numbers, but what mathematicians call operators. Moreover, when you multiplied these operators, the order in which you did the multiplication really mattered. A times B was not necessarily the same as B times A. Algebraic systems in which the order of multiplication matters are called non-commutative systems. And if you're thinking of these algebraic systems as describing geometric spaces, 
Then you're doing what is called non-commutative geometry. The basic discovery of non-commutative geometry is that you can do all of geometry, if you do it algebraically, you can do all of geometry you're familiar with, even to quite advanced levels, without ever assuming that your variables commute. And therefore, you just have a richer world. It is within this world of non-commutative geometry that Majid has built his model of space-time. He has defined a specific non-commutative algebraic system, which he hopes describes space-time more accurately than ordinary geometry does. Majid does not claim that his model is the ultimate answer. It's only very simple, but it is a starting point. And excitingly, it can be tested against reality. It is possible to redo many of the calculations of classical physics within the non-commutative framework. In particular, it is possible to reformulate the wave equation. And this wave operator will allow you to tell you how you, th how you think speed, how you think waves propagate. And then you can solve that equation, and then you will discover that there are some deviations from what you might expect for the speed of light. The variations imply that less energetic photons should travel faster than more energetic ones. Although the differences are tiny, if the photons travel cosmological distances, then the effects should be measurable. NASA's GLAST satellite will be launched later this year and part of its mission protocol is to provide data that could detect such a variable speed of light. We may soon know more about the exact nature of space-time. The changes in the Arctic climate in the past few decades have been particularly severe. Records of air temperatures show that about twice the rate of change has occurred there compared to the rest of the globe. Summer sea ice cover has been decreasing at approximately 100,000 kilometres a year and there has been widespread melting of glaciers. But this isn't just bad news for the Arctic. Marianne talked to João Rodriguez from the Polar Ocean Physics Group at Cambridge University, who explained that changes to the Arctic, and particularly to the Arctic sea ice, may have serious consequences for the whole globe. The Arctic on its own can also influence strongly what happens in the rest of the globe. For instance, as the sea ice forms in the polar regions, it rejects the salt, thus it creates a layer of high density. This surface water then tends to sink, because it's denser than the surrounding water, and thus it creates a downward convection mechanism. The convection that occurs in, mostly in the Greenland Sea and in the Labrador Sea is also regarded as the engine of the global thermohaline circulation, which mm -hmm. is a large system of currents in the ocean that uh, brings surface water to deep near the seabed and mm -hmm. back again. Part of this global conveyor belt as it's also known, is the Gulf Stream, which brings all the heat to Western Europe and is partly responsible for our mild climate here in Britain. If the ice fails to form like it has been failing to form in the past five years in some parts of the polar regions, then maybe all this mechanism of convection may slow down or, in the worst-case scenario, it can shut down then we may cease to have this heat transport to the Western Isles and eventually, whereas all the rest of the planet will become warmer, the British Isles may have a climate similar to, let's say, Newfoundland. Finally, there's another particular reason to be concerned about the sea ice and its decrease, which is the fact that sea ice and the snow that normally covers it are highly reflective which means that if we have less sea ice, we'll have less reflection and thus more absorption, 
and thus leading to an increase in the warming of the planet. So what's the role of mathematics in understanding sea ice and its changes? Mathematics is widely used, used in the building of sea ice models and more generally of uh, climate models, which are very complicated because they couple the atmosphere, the ice and the ocean and all the equations involved need extremely powerful mathematical techniques. Let me just give you a, a simple example. If we have a, a slab of floating ice and we have um, the air temperature above it at about let's say minus 20 to give a number and the ocean temperature below that at minus 1.8 Celsius which is a typical temperature at which the seawater freezes and we want to know how thick will this slab of ice grow in a certain time or what is the maximum thickness that it can reach. <clears throat> this is a well-defined mathematical problem, it's known as the Stefan problem and once the properties of the ice are known, such as its density, its specific heat, its thermal conductivity, then we can construct a differential equation which describes the heat exchange between the cold atmosphere and the warm ocean. This is just a, an example of the use of a mathematical technique, namely just solving a differential equation to find the solution of a simple problem. So what conclusions and predictions can you make about the future from the work that's being done by you and by other physicists at the Polar Ocean Physics Group? Well, we have been studying satellite data and submarine data from the past 30 years or so. This study shows that um, the Arctic is currently losing ice at a rate of about 100,000 square kilometers per year. This means that in a period of three years, the Arctic loses an ice area which is about the size of the British Isles. The problem to predict how things will evolve, apart from the fact that the equations are extremely complicated, lies on the fact that we don't know precisely the actual thickness distribution in the Arctic. The thickness is very difficult to measure. Having said that, most models predict that the Arctic Ocean will be ice-free in the summer before the end of the century. That's very soon. Yes, but it can be even sooner than that due to some non-linear effects in the equations. The changes may be abrupt mm. in some periods. As soon as a certain threshold is reached, then the decrease is much faster than linear. And then some models predict that around 2040 the ice may have gone in the summer. So there's reason to be worried. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for the First Plus podcast. If you'd like to find out more about anything you heard in this podcast, then please visit the PLUS website at plus.maths.org and stay tuned for the next podcast in September. <laughs>